John the Baptist said, He must become greater, I must become less. Jesus later said about John that he was one of the greatest men that ever lived. His exact words are found in Luke 7. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. John was a unique individual. He lived in the desert. He ate locusts and uh, wild honey. But he had a real clear sense of God's purpose for his life. To set the scene, in Israel at this time, there was intense religious excitement. The Jews knew that the prophesied time for the coming of, of the Messiah was now. So they were, they were looking for the Messiah at the time. Also, there was severe and harsh Roman occupation of Israel. And so the people were looking for a religious solution to their political uh, problem with the Romans. So when they heard that uh, there was a new prophet, they flocked out to the desert to hear him. John the Baptist had a particular talent for drawing crowds and motivating crowds. He was a fiery preacher, a passionate preacher, and huge throngs of people came to the desert to hear him. Then Jesus started preaching and people started going over to him. An argument arose over whose baptism was greater, John's or Jesus. John's role here was not easy. There is tremendous ego stimulation in drawing huge crowds of people to come hear you. He tried to explain to his followers that it was right for people to go hear the main attraction, and that main attraction was Jesus. Living Bible says it this way, I told you I was not the Messiah. I am here to prepare the way for him. That is all. Then he made the statement that immortalized him in history, the greatest statement John the Baptist ever made. He must become greater. I must become less. He must become greater. I must become less. That's a statement that each of us who follow Christ must say to ourselves almost every day. But how do we do this? C.S. Lewis said we must become like little Christs. We must emulate Christ to the point where, while we're certainly not Christ, but we become little Christ trying to be like Him. You might have thought of some cornerstones I have in the past of, what, of Christianity. What are the basics of Christianity? And I'm going to mention four that it's my sense they're cornerstones, but you may have other uh, cornerstones that you can think of. But I think there are at least four basics. Love, faith, forgiveness, and humility. And we could have a whole discussion about those uh, four cornerstones, and uh, much could be said, but it's clear that John the, Bible, John the Baptist had a clear uh, understanding and perspective of humility. 
For many of us, humility is uh, a movement that's gradual. It's a hard lesson to learn. Um, All of us want, as it said, humility without the humiliation. And uh, C.S. Lewis said about pride and ego, uh, pride and ego are the insidious blocks toward humility. C.S. Lewis said, pride is a spiritual cancer. It eats up the very possibility of love or contentment or even common sense. So we might consider if we're easily offended or easily angered, may indicate that our humility level is low. I see these warning lights going off for me in my life far too often. So how do we follow this admonition of he must become greater, I must become less? There are some signs that we might be off track. As Jeff Foxworthy might say, you might be a counterfeit Christian if... Now, we're not going to do that, but there are some areas that we can consider as a gut check as to what's increasing in our lives. It may help us identify, is he increasing or are we increasing? Those three areas are comfort, wealth, and power. Comfort, wealth, and power. The first indicator, comfort, whose comfort have we been concentrating on? We might be increasing if we're focused on our own comfort. He might be increasing if we're focused on the comfort of others. Eddie uh, Caparucci, a Christian counselor in Marietta, wrote an article called Our Selfish Desire for Comfort. And he talks about our desire for peace and happiness and less hectic schedules and reduced burdens. And then he says, whether we wish to admit it or not, comfort is our number one goal. And achieving comfort is usually the focus of our sinful nature. He believes that we begin by using distractions, by engulfing ourselves in activities like binge TV watching, social media, video games, and also excessive um, alcohol, drugs, food, sex, and materialism. When I was in the seventh grade, I came to class one morning, math class, and uh, my math teacher had put up on the uh, chalkboard in big letters a sentence, and it said, Every individual must have some passionate endeavor in which to lose himself from the barrenness and futility of life. A little heavy for a seventh grader, don't you think? Had a big impact on me. Um, I suspect I'm perhaps not the only kid in that class that remembers that statement word for word. As I look back and think about that man... I can't help but wonder if he wasn't truly a lonely and tortured soul. Uh, Fortunately for me, God reversed that thinking in my mind. And I've thought how much better it would have been if he had said, every individual must have 
a passionate faith in Christ in which to be saved from the barrenness and futility of a self-centered life. How much more that would have changed some of those students if he had said that. And I pray that he, in his later years, might have come to that conclusion. Jesus was focused on bringing us out of ourselves and into helping others. He even linked helping others to eternal life for us. He said in Matthew 25 that when he returns, he'll gather his, uh, the righteous together and he will say to them, Come, you are, who are blessed by my Father. Take your inheritance, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And when the righteous asked, "Uh, Lord, when did we see you in these needs? He replied, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And we can also remember that immediately after the Lord's Supper, Jesus washed his disciples' feet. After eating, Jesus showed them how to serve. From then on, it was no longer eating time, it was serving time. Many of us are still focused on eating time. We do lots to be fed. We select a church to be fed, we read books to be fed. We go to classes to be fed. And sometimes it is feeding time, but sometimes it's also serving time. If you've been fed, consider that it might be time to start working some of it off. So are we serving anyone else, or is it always eating time for me? In this world, we are naturally born self-oriented. Self-oriented is a nice way of saying selfish. God wants us to be reborn into an other-oriented, selfless life. He wants us to focus outside ourselves on Him, the only truth. But if we're honest, we're not on a truth quest. We're on an ego trip and a happiness quest. The comfort question comes down to, where is our focus? Are you focused mostly inward or outward? Are you increasing your comfort or increasing the comfort of others? The second indicator is wealth. What's increasing in our lives? We might be increasing if our personal wealth is growing, but our spiritual wealth is not. He might be increasing if our spiritual wealth, that is our spiritual knowledge, our spiritual lives, is growing. If we're focused mainly on increasing our wealth, in Luke 12, Jesus told us what that was going to be like, the parable of the farmer who had a bumper crop, and he said, I'm going to tear down all my barns, and I'm going to build bigger barns, and I'm going to store it all, and then I'm going to never work again, and I'm going to be uh, happy. I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry, he said. And God said, you fool, this day, this very day, your life will be demanded of you. God also said in Isaiah 5 
Woe to you who add house to house and field to field until no space is left and you live alone in the land. Those are just a couple of scriptural warnings about the danger in the unhealthy pursuit of wealth. And then, of course, there's the quote from that famous theologian, Lily Tomlin. The problem with being in a rat race is, even if you win, you're still a rat. I read a devotional recently that said, ironically, when you pursue wealth, your family suffers the most. Even when your desire is for them to enjoy the benefits that money may provide. You may have also heard the saying, success can not only turn a man's head, it can wring his neck. And perhaps that's true, that's uh, particularly true in a person's spiritual life. That's the one neck we have to protect because it's a fatal and eternally fatal if we strangle our own souls. Jesus was not hesitant to talk about money. He did it all the time. He did, did it a lot. Um, he made it perfectly clear in Matthew 6. Do not store up for yourselves treasure in heaven. So we must ask ourselves, where are we building up our treasures? Is he increasing or are we increasing? One obvious indicator, of course, is our checkbooks. Prom proportional giving is biblical. In Luke 12... Jesus said, to he who much is given, much will be expected. And sometimes it's hard to take that leap of faith into tithing. You may have heard the story about the uh, fellow that fell off the cliff and on the way down he grabbed onto a limb, a small limb, and he hung there and he yelled out, help, help. And he, he yelled so many times he started to tire and his hands became tired and his grip was starting to loosen and he and in desperation he yelled is anyone up there and he heard this voice say I am here and he said who is there and he heard a voice said it is the Lord have faith And he said I do have faith and the voice said then let go and there was a quiet time, and then he looked down, and he looked up and said, Is anyone else up there? <laughs> On the flip side of wealth, he might be increasing if our spiritual wealth, that is our spiritual knowledge, and our spiritual lives are growing. The, one of the main indicators is if we're regularly studying God's Word. It's been said, <clears throat> sin will keep us from God's Word or God's Word will keep us from sin. Marvin Rosenthal, executive director of Zion's Hope, which is a messianic Jewish publication, uh, recently wrote an article entitled, What is Your Spiritual Heartbeat? And in it he said, Do you read the Holy Scriptures daily? Do you read them for more than a few minutes? Do you read them slowly and deliberately when you're not half asleep and with your full attention, looking for meaning in every word? Or 
have the pressures of life, the demands on our time, and the mental energy required weaned you away from a regular, systematic study of God's Word. You may think yours is the only heart that's grown cold, that only you have gotten away from the Word and prayer. But these are areas in which most believers have struggled through the centuries. You may be a true believer, perhaps even in a position of leadership in the church, but if you're not spending quality time in the personal study of God's Word, if there's not a truly meaningful time in prayer with the Lord each day, then when it comes to spiritual heartbeat, your spiritual heartbeat, the bottom line is very weak. His article described me at many times in my life, perhaps in yours as well. One goal of regular study of God's Word is to know Him to the point that we have a personal relationship with Christ. That term is often misunderstood, but it's important. Um, We might remember that Jesus said in Matthew 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. So how do we have a personal relationship with Christ to the point where He knows us? The answer is in both the study of His Word and particularly in prayer. To, To know anyone, we must communicate with them. And prayer is how two-way communication is done with Christ and our Father. A personal relationship with Christ is is multidimensional because He's not only our King and our Savior, but He is an unfathomable Spirit beyond our understanding. As our Savior, He told us that He's also our friend. A friend who's gone through all that we have gone through. And he's our brother. So, he's our, he, so we're family. And about the time you get your head around that, you have to reflect back on his largesse and our insignificance. Thus there's a, this imbalance between knowing him as king and indescribable spirit and knowing him also as friend and brother and family. And knowing that He loves us and wants to make us eternal like Him is hard to understand. But what an invitation to become part of the eternal. Again, He might be increasing if our spiritual wealth, that is, our spiritual lives and our spiritual actions, are growing through study of His Word and through communing two-way prayer. The third indicator is power. We might be increasing if our power and influence is growing, but God's is not. He might be increasing if God's power and influence over our lives is growing. We might be increasing if we're using our power.